I'm C.J. Layton, coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show is regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and Bowling Writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002, 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company. Well, Phantom fans, this week we'll be paying tribute to an all-time great that we recently lost. He left us way too early, but during his time here with us, he thrilled millions of fans and pretty much changed the game when he went on tour in the early 70s. To talk about our friend is a man who has been here with us many times before, and he was a very close friend to our all-time great that we're going to pay tribute to. So with us is PBA and USBC Hall of Famer, who also wrote a monthly article in Bowler's Journal, amongst many, many things he's done in the industry for over 20 years. He's a legend in our sport. So here he is, Larry Lickstein. Hello, Larry. And I, I know with a heavy heart, you can pass on a few memories, right? Well, uh, wonderful memories, uh, Len. Again, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. But it was it was guys like Mark and Earl and many that we lost that made Larry. In other words, Larry Larry wasn't a great bowler, but Larry was there. When Larry was player service director, Larry dealt with all of these people for 22 years. I guess that's one of the benefits. I had in my life, you know, I was a good bowler, but never, a, you know, a, a top 100. But, you know, I had nice things happen, but I saw greatness. And when I, I think of Mark, I think of Mark like a, it might sound a little funny to our audience, but I think they'll get it. I hope they get it. Uh, you know, Haley's Comet comes by the earth about every 84 years or so. And um, it, it lasts a little while for a day and it's gone. It, go, it goes back into the heavens the planet's five billion years old and we only live 70 or 80 or 90 years if we're lucky and we're gone and mark roth's stay was that of a comet that came down from the heavens and ended up living in brooklyn starting in the projects a very poor man with a poor family who had this gift from god that when he threw a bowling ball there was no one like it a great story. The first time I ever saw him, and you're going to laugh at me, but I'm not lying, Len, was March 7th, 1970. And you'd say, how is that even possible? How could Larry Lickstein 
come up with a date from almost 52 years ago. Well, it was simple. There was a press conference held at the Pennsylvania Hotel across the street from Madison Square Garden. It was the Metropolitan New York Bowling Writers Awards Dinner. And I was signing to the AMS staff that day, and they introduced me, and I signed my contract, and they put a blazer on me. We went across the street to the garden because the Don Carter Classic was starting there on Tuesday morning, which was the practice session. And as I went over to the garden, I was talking with Helen McMahon, Junie McMahon's wife from AMF. My back was to the pins, and I kept hearing this ball go down the lanes. We used to have a game at Bradley Bowl that you We'd sit with our back towards the pins, and when somebody would make a leave, we'd bet what it was by the sound. We knew a week 10. We knew a four pin. We knew a two, four, five. We knew a washout. It had the sound. We used to play the sound game. And I'm hearing this ball behind me, and I never heard the sound. Now, the acoustics were different in the garden. They weren't a drop ceiling. They were sheetrock. It was slanted. This was on a mezzanine inside of a building. It wasn't a normal bowling center, you know, built in a different acoustics, but I never heard this sound before. And I turn around and I watch this kid and he's like, it's all over the place. He's cranking the cover off the ball. And he looks at me and he smiles and I go on about my day and I never see him again, but I, I didn't forget him. He seemed to be a nice kid. He was about 18. Later that year, there's a Christmas classic tournament at Century Lanes in Huntington, Long Island, three squad Saturday, three squad Sunday, five games across 10 lanes. 1500 guaranteed for first. That was big money back then. I drove down from Connecticut Saturday. Sunday, I went over to Huntington, bowled the second squad, took the lead. All the greats are bowling. Tita, Ralph Engen, Ernie, Mike Lemongello of the Metropolitan New York area are bowling this tournament. I shoot 1165 for five. I'm counting the money. I got away one more squad. I know I'm going to make 1500. The lanes are tough. And I just, you bowled well. So, the squad comes in, the last squad, and there's that goofy kid, that kid that I saw at the garden. I went, oh, there's that kid. <laughs> Interesting, you know. And I watch him the first game. He's falling back 20. He's ripping the freaking cover off the ball. He's throwing a Brunswick LTD or a Black Diamonds, one of the two. And he shoots like 260 the first game, and I'm thinking, he ain't there's no way. He's crossing pairs, you know. He's, there's 170 in there somewhere. And the next game's like 230, and the next game's like 250. And he's caught me after three. He's about 160 over. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, don't tell me this guy's going to beat me. He shoots 1235. I had, I had never seen 1200 for five crossing pairs in my life, and it was Mark Rock. So I congratulate him. Later that summer, I'm 71. I stay home. I bowl the Newsday. And he finished the second to Jimmy McHugh. I'm fifth. So I bowled him four games in the Newsday. We became friends. He comes out in 72 in the winter. I see him. He's rooming with Tita. He's rooming with Tita. How's that one, Len? Uh-huh. And we lose them both within three days. Yeah. That one's a little that one's a little, little freaky for me. But, really? you know, he's rooming with Tita, and he's rooming with Bob Perry, who won two high rollers. Bob Perry was great 50 years ago. Bob was from Patterson, New Jersey. And he's wild that winter, but he makes the finals here and there. And I, that winter, I'm not sure. Don't remember much about the winter. I know I didn't bowl good. It was a very bad winter for me. And uh, the lanes were very tight that winter. And uh, my ball was was going to the baby split the minute I missed the board left. I I used to yell at the lane man, but you wouldn't know anything about that. So anyways, let's go forward. Um, (laughs) By the end of the year, he leads the world open, but he loses to Johnson. Now, the significance of that is, is that Johnson wins bowler of the year for the second year in a row. And no right-hander 
had won Bowler of the Year back-to-back years since the advent of the traveling tour in 62. Bowler of the Year in 62 was Weber, 63 Hardwick, 64 Strampy, 65 Weber, 66 Zahn, 67 Davis, 68 Stefanich, 69 Hardwick, 70 Burton, 71 and 2 Johnson. So now he loses to the Bowler of the Year. If anybody had told me that week, because I made the finals in that World Open, I think I was eighth or ninth, that Mark Roth is going to be the first right-hander to win Bowler of the Year three years in a row, I'd have laughed at him. I'd have said, you're out of your mind. He can't beat Lobb. He can't beat Johnson. He can't beat Burton. He can't beat Stefanich. He can't beat Sutar. He can't beat Weber. He, he <laughs> cannot beat Roy Buckley. These guys were all coming on strong. He cannot beat Durbin. He cannot, he cannot beat Mike McGrath. He cannot beat Earl Anthony. So keep in mind, he wins Bowler of the Year, 77, 78, 79, the first right-hander to ever do it. And during that stretch, he cashes 52 weeks in a row, misses by a pin in Syracuse for a cash spot, and cashes 27 more. He cashes 79 of 80 tournaments crossing the United States 35 weeks a year. And this is not a knock on today's people. So please, who's ever listening, this has nothing to do with today. This has to do with then. Every ball was equal. Everybody used a pancake weight block. The hardness was 75. They were either plastic or they were softer rubber, but they had to be 75. There was no flare. There was no reps. There was no trick weight blocks. There was no Aberlon. You weren't allowed to do any of that. It was 75 hardness, go out and bowl. And he dominated that tour, including Earl Anthony. The payoff is in 1980, he leads the Masters and he loses to Neil Burton. So he's two shots away from winning the Masters. If he wins the Masters, he was in a close race with Wayne Webb, who did win Bowler of the Year. Now he's Bowler of the Year four years in a row. He's two open frames away from four Bowler of the Years in a row. Now you've got to understand who he's beating at this time. He's beating 30 Hall of Famers. So now we go into 81. Gets very interesting. AMF, who hadn't had a bowler of the year since 69, hires a physicist from MIT named Edmund Leary, and they give him the job, and this is what they tell him. Build us a ball so our staff can stand where Mark Roth stands and looks where Mark Roth looks. It's got, <laughs> it's got to meet PBA specifications. We're going to pay you. He was a physicist from MIT, tested for a year and a half, and in March of 81, they came out with the angle ball. And the tournament committee voted that it should be banned 16 to 0. And they called me in, and they asked my opinion at the, term to, at the uh, uh, executive board meeting in Las Vegas. And I said, well, I agree. However, you start telling these ball companies what to do, we're out of business. And they, suppo- they supply our tour with, with equipment, and they pay our staffs. And if we start telling them we don't like their bowling balls, they're going to go somewhere else with their advertising dollars. And we're going to lose four or five potential sponsors every year. And I don't think this tour can afford to do that. So the executive board passed the angle ball, the end of the winter tour of 81. And now Roth could get beat by right-handers who could play the lane deeper than they ever could in their lives. So Anthony's bowler of the year in 81, two and three, Roth had signed with Brunswick. Well, Brunswick's first urethane balls were so bad that I suggested that they drop them on Tehran and try to kill the Ayatollah with them. (laughs) So 
those balls, those red edges were boat anchors. At the, we, they would give 100 a week away. At the end of every week, 70 would be left on the locker room floor. That's wow. how bad they were. Yeah. So Roth is, so while the angle ball and the black hammer come out and start dominating, Roth doesn't have a good urethane ball. And now everybody can get in where he is. And that was the start of the change of the game. So in essence, Roth changed the game. No question about it. No question about it. And he changed the game not because he did something wrong. It's because nobody could do what he did. So what happened was when it became evident that his power was so far advanced, the only thing the ball companies could do to protect their staffs was to give them a ball where they could play the lane like Mark. Mark was doing it with yellow dots. So they give him urethane, and all of a sudden these guys could scuff him up a little bit. And all of a sudden... They could stand 25, you know, and look at 13, 14 and pitch it to the right like Roth did when the shot was inside the track. So he gets beaten 81, 2, and 3 by Earl. And a lot of righties beat him in those events because he didn't have equipment yet. At the end of 83, he doesn't sign with Brunswick. And Earl quits the tour and he says to me, Litchie, I want to be bowler of the year. We start drilling anything we wanted to give him, me and Bill Hall. And he became bowler of the year in 84. So in essence, if he beats Neil Burton, he's four years in a row. If he loses to Earl 81, 2, and 3, if Earl quits three years earlier, he might have been bolder the year eight years in a row, Mark Ruff. Unbelievable. That's how, that's how close it was, Lynn. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. They don't think of it that way. It's not their fault. You had to be there. You had to watch it every week. And during this stretch I'm talking about, I had been at every PBA event from the World Open of 73 to August of 83. I was at 363 straight. So the bottom line was I had a handle on it. You know, I was, I'm not making this up because I'm some old man that needs some publicity. You know, I was there. <laughs> I saw it. And it was the most fascinating attack against the pins I had ever seen. Because in his case, in 77, 89, everybody's equipment was equal. There was no reps. There was no pads. There was no flare. Everybody's track was a quarter inch wide. He was unbelievable, and everybody knew they couldn't beat him psychologically. As great as Marshall was, Marshall knew he was he was not going to beat Mark, although he thought he could. I don't blame him. He was great. And those shows, if Mark or Marshall or Earl all happened to hit one of them, where two of the three were on it, our ratings went through the roof. We could beat the Masters. You know, we, we there was five million sanctioned league bowlers at that time. Everybody turned the telecast on. It was a wonderful, wonderful time for bowling. And Mark Roth was the king. He was the greatest right-hander, and many people feel the greatest bowler of his time because, you know, Earl was left-handed, and Earl didn't have to play the right side. The right side was beat up. The left side was smooth. And people will have that discussion from now forever back on the Wood Lane scenario. Of course, now it's so different with synthetics and patterns. It's not the same game, obviously. And that's part of the sport of bowling, you know, just the way it evolved. You know, it's evolution. It's the way it is. But Mark Lennon, in my opinion, was like that comet that came out of the heavens. Wow. That, that's unbelievable the way you said that because you're exactly right. You know, when I started following the tour in the early 60s, uh, my buddy Hardwick was up on top and, and I learned the game watching him and uh, talking to Sam Baca all the time. And, you know, pretty much it was a down and in game, mostly pretty straight players. But toward the end of, of the 60s, there were a couple of power players, uh, Barry Asher and Jim Godman. But when Mark came out, 
he made those guys look like they were throwing a, a ping pong ball. He was unbelievable. So, well, I, I, you're not only right. I think Barry was the closest to Mark when Mark came out. Barry was the the the, the most dominant power player on the right. He was throwing Ripley's. They were 92 hardness. He could fall back to fourth arrow as good as anybody that was alive. Barry was, you know, a a, a child phenom. He started bowling great at 10, 11 years of age. So. You know, when he came out in the 70s, he was touted by Lee Juglard and Sarge Easter and all these guys, Glenn Allison, and everybody said, and Don Carter, they all said this is going to be the next superstar. And he was so close to being that. I mean, he got the four or five title matches in between the TC, the Masters, and the National. I mean, he was right there, you know, one or two balls away from uh, being maybe bowler of the year in one of them years. A lot of people don't realize sometimes it's one or two balls. It's not one or two games, you know, because back then if you opened, you you not only had an open frame, but you lost 50 bonus pins. Well, two opens could cost you 100 bonus pins. Right. And, and that could could not only stop you from winning uh, in, in the 40-game uh, format where we didn't have TV, but it also, it also could knock you off of TV when we did have the step ladder. So Barry, you know, Barry, I've talked a lot uh, about Mark with Barry. Barry's very pragmatic. And both of us agreed we're going to go to the uh, uh, memorial for Mark in March uh, up at the Holman Roth doubles in Wisconsin. I don't really want to travel that much. I hope they have a tour. I don't know what's going to go on with all this garbage. It's starting again in our country with, with the COVID, but, if there is a tour and we're allowed to go, uh, we're going. I just talked to Denise a lot, Lens. I've never met a woman like her. That might get me emotional today. Yeah, um, she was. She's very strong, you know. And, and, oh, and I want to thank. I want to thank you for one extra thing that I didn't expect, but I'm glad you did. That you added all that history to Mark Roth. You know, there's a lot of things in there that I didn't know about. And uh, well, I I think our industry, and again, this is not a knock. I'm not on your show to knock anything. And that's just going to get you nowhere, although I've been known to do it in the past. But once I became a USBC and, of course, a PBA Hall of Famer, I decided that I cannot be in any way derogatory about the game. The game has been too good to me. It's given me a life. Sure, there's things I don't like, a lot of things we don't like in this world. But I can't at this time, and quite frankly, since I got inducted, I can't blame this game for anything. It gave me a life. I'm still active. I still work. And if it wasn't for bowling, you know, I'd be in a lot of trouble right now. So I feel I owe a lot to the sport. I, we made a mistake. We never documented the little things. Like in baseball, they'll tell you if a guy batted once in 1940, and if he walked or struck out, they'll tell you his hometown and how old he was. And he might he might have had one at bat. They'll give you every statistic about the sport of baseball you could possibly imagine, and then some. And that's why baseball is America's pastime. And they usually, on every single telecast, bring up greatness about someone that played for that team yeah. 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago. And I believe in that. And I believe we lost our identity because we weren't intelligent enough to demand that little records be kept about Mark Ross second place in 1980. And what would have happened in the points if he beat Neil Burton in the masters in Louisville in a one game match. Now, if it cost him bowler of the year, and I believe it did, that should have been noted and people should have been aware of it because he was on three years in a row at that point. So it's right. simple. Yeah, we should have done it. Yeah. There's a lot of things they should have done, but one thing I want to do is make sure we don't let this get biased is, 
You know, Mark was a very humble guy. He was very modest. Uh, he signed every autograph, but he would hide in the concourse a lot of times behind the Coke machine because he, he wanted to watch the guy's bowl. He didn't want to stand there for an hour and a half to sign autographs. But Pards, uh, the one thing I want to say before we have to close the show, and, you know, he did go. He left us way too soon. But the positive side, and if you have faith, he has now joined Earl Anthony, Dick Weber, Don Carter, Billy Hardwick. What a team in heaven, huh? What a team. We'll throw in Don Johnson and Jimmy Godwin and Dick Ricker, and we'll see where we are with that one. Uh, <laughs> I want to say one other thing, too, if you'll let me, Len. You know, his nickname was Smock. Yeah. He walked in the locker room, and I'd go, Smock, how'd your bowl? And he'd go, Slitchy, I shot 200. Now, there's there's a reason he got the name Smock. There was a friend of his, and the friend had a little bit of a stutter, and the friend idolized him, and he'd call him Smock. <laughs> so I used to make a lot of signs in the locker room, and I went that one day, and I bought a bunch of magic markers. And I would make my signs. This is where it's transport. Your bill is due. Do not enter. Uh, ball way in this time. Ball's for sale. Bill's got to be paid. And I always had all these magic mar markers. So I now, he would walk in the locker room and I'd call him the, the magic smaka. And <laughs> because I bought magic markers. Yeah. And the minute I saw magic markers, I added an S and made a magic smarkers. <laughs> And that's how he got his name. We laughed about it our whole lives when I would see him. And the last four months of his life, I hadn't spoke to him in a while. I felt guilty. Uh, I started calling him in September. I promised him I'd call him once a week and I would go up to see him in Oswego. I spoke to him eight days before he died. Uh, I had a feeling that he was going to pass away. I, I just heard it in his voice. Within three or four days, he was in the hospital. Uh, became unconscious and died, and um, he suffered horribly, and so did Denise. And what a woman. I, I want to say this, Len, to all your listeners. Uh, I've never met a woman quite as devoted like this woman. Uh, her last 12 years uh, of taking care of him were excruciating on her health and financially, and she never gave up, and she did everything for Mark she possibly could to keep him alive and keep him comfortable with love, and she was always there to visit him when he was in the home. And she would go in and sit with him for hours. And she brought in his banner and his trophies and the things that he liked. And his room was surrounded with his memorabilia in, wow. his, little, in his little room. And she told me about that. And we were crying. It's very tough. But I want people to remember that uh, this woman uh, gave him 12 very hard years from his stroke to his death. And she's still suffering. So we should all pray for her. She put something out last night on Facebook that was elegant, elegant and just absolutely wonderful and beautiful. And there's been 300 comments already, 200 comments today on the tribute she wrote for Mark from all around the country. And she's just, she's wonderful. So got to pray for Denise, yep. pray for Mark's soul and remember who we saw in our lives. It's all we can do. Let me, let me say this, Barb's uh, we, we had Earl Anthony, um, tribute it's a three 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 shows let's do another one at least one more with mark 
and let's talk about some great times, some fun times. We don't want to end it with people going away uh, grieving about Mark. You know, they had a chance for years and years to watch him and, and cheer him on. So I'm going to schedule I a got, couple more shows where we can have a good time. I got time, stories, right? Len. I got, I got some hilarious stories. All right. Well, and if you want to go on that, if you want to go on that one, and we keep it that way. I can, I can certainly do that. I've got yeah. four or five that are from another world. Yeah. And um, we, the, the audience would love to hear these stories. They're wonderful. I, I know they would, Pars. That's what I want to do. I want to end it on a happy note and, and and smile like we did with Mark. He made us all laugh. And besides him being so amazing, but next week we're gonna have you back again. We're gonna do another tribute show, and this one to Tita Samez. So. I want to thank our sponsors for letting us go over a little bit this week. And at this point in time, uh, we got about a, another half a minute, Larry. Uh, give us a goodbye for this show, and we're going to continue with Mark down the road. Well, Len, I, as usual, I want to thank you for what you've done. You're an amazing man, and uh, your show, 20 years now, pretty close. And the fact that you're uh, I'm, I'm making sure that we don't forget greatness is a wonderful attribute to you and what you've done for the sport. You know, we're lucky to have you. It's just that simple, Phantom. You've well, done a great job. You, you know, too, I love Bart. you very much. You take care of yourself because it's the same thing I feel about you. Well, thank you so much, Len. Very nice of you. All right, Bart. Well, we're going to forego all the closings and thank our sponsors again for giving us this extra time. And you stay by the phone. We're going to make up a couple more uh, shows about Mark. And then I'll talk to you again next week with Tina Samez. So, Phantom fans. Thank you, Larry. This is The Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some loving care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me Soon I